Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. First, we start with the two Michaels finally back home after more than a thousand days in jail in China. What was it like for them to get the news they were coming home? What does it feel like to set your feet on Canadian soil again after such a long time? Get that first hug from your loved ones. My next guest knows exactly what that feels like. He went through an extremely similar experience himself. Kevin Garrett, he spent two years in prison in China on espionage charges, finally was able to come home. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Kevin, thanks a lot for coming on today. You're welcome, Mike. Glad to be here. Hey, Kevin, we've talked before about the plight of the two Michaels. And the last time you were on the show, we talked about the potential for them to come home and Thank goodness we, they've come home, I think, quicker than, than we thought at that time, and they're back home in Canada now. What do you think that was like for them as a guy who went through something very similar? What do you, th- what do you think they've gone through here the last few days? I think they're elated. I think they're over the, really over the moon with happiness, but I think it's shock, too. Uh, I think yeah. they they're have to decompress from all this tension and pressure that they lived under for more than 1,000 days and uh, you know, come back to a, a new normal, a new reality, is going to take some time for them. Yeah, let's talk about your experience, uh, Kevin. And um, when you were detained in China, I remember I asked you at the time when you were arrested and you corrected me, you said, no, you weren't arrested, you were abducted in China. Um, let's talk about like when you finally found after two years that you were coming home to Canada, how did you get the news? I got the news because on the uh, 13th of September, 2016, I was uh, taken to court for a verdict hearing with no notice. So I was just taken out of my cell, said, you're going to court. And uh, they read an eight-page verdict, sentenced me to eight years. And then I was told you could be deported. Or, or the end yeah. of the sentence basically was you could be deported. And uh, But there was a, two people from the um, embassy there, consular affairs, were there. And they told me, we have another meeting after this, you know, after the judicial process is done and you could be deported as early as thursday so this is uh, you know 36 hours uh, in the future and that's exactly what happened but it was quite a shock and i really didn't believe it uh it was yeah. happening until i was actually on the plane out of chinese airspace yeah you almost don't want to believe uh that it's actually going to happen after such a long time when did it finally occur to you that okay this is real this is happening i'm going home uh kind of when i got on the plane i saw our American lawyer, who I'd never met, and uh, head of consular affairs, Sean Robertson, on the plane. And then it's like, okay, this is beginning to, to feel real. But it, when I got out of Chinese airspace, then I started to relax and say, okay. And when we landed in Tokyo, and they said, oh, you can use the lounge and go have a shower. It was the first time in two years I could have a shower by myself. Oh, wow. that, that was huge. And I just wanted to stay there for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. I bet that was the best shower you ever had. Oh, uh, yes, it was. Speaking of Kevin Garrett, he's a BC man. He spent two years in jail in China. Highly recommend his book, Two Tears on the Window, which describes his experience along with his wife, Julia. Um, the two Michaels, after they were detained, after the arrest of Chinese tech executive Meng Wanzhou, 
you know, the parallels to what you went through are, are very, very similar because there was a Chinese national in Canada, a guy named Su Bin, right. who uh, was arrested in China mm -hmm. on an extradition warrant to the United States, and, and you were detained after he was arrested here. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, the parallels are, are too similar to, to, you know, discount them. It's, it's exactly what's happened with the two Michaels, exactly what happened with me. You know, we call it hostage diplomacy, right? They take right. someone to, and they want to trade. That's yeah, I know. It was, it was the same deal. It was the same hostage dis diplomacy, an arrest in retaliation for the arrest in Canada of a Chinese national. So the same thing that the two Michaels went through, th that happened to you too. Uh, you went through that trial, that so-called trial over there, right? Like, was that like a yeah. one-day one-day trial, just like the Michael? Uh, I think it's Michael Spavor went through a one. Day so, you know, Michael Spavor, I think his trial was a couple of hours. Mine was all day <laughs> long. I guess they wanted to yeah. make it look nicer or something. But it, it, was, it was the trial. It was I could tell when I went in, the verdict was already decided. It didn't matter what I said or didn't say. You know, everything was already set. The stage was set, and I would just they were going through the motions. That's all. Yeah, and, and just like the two Michaels, you were accused in, of espionage. Yes, and yeah. I wondered, how could they get it so wrong when we ran a coffee shop, we were doing aid work in North Korea, we were helping with an orphanage, things like that, and they said, we're spies? And it's like, you know, that's a big, that's a big stretch. Yeah. Okay, let me play a clip here for you, Kevin, of Michael Kovrig, and here he is back home in Canada on the weekend, uh, appearing on the West Block on Global News. And he was asked, what do you want to say to Canadians? Here's what he had to say. I just want to say thank you very much to all Canadians for the enormous support uh, and uh, all the effort that uh, so many people have made to help bring Michael Spavor and me home. Uh, it, it was really moving and knowing that so many people knew about the situation, cared about the situation, really helped us get through a very difficult time. And we are so happy now. I am so delighted to be back home with my family uh, and to be back in Canada and I'm really looking forward to reconnecting with friends and family and finally getting out and seeing all the beauty of Canada. Uh, so I'm, I am immensely happy and thank you so much. Okay, Michael Kovrig there back in Canada after over a thousand days in jail in China on the weekend speaking to the West Block and I had the privilege of interviewing uh, Michael Kovrig's wife on the show, Vina Najibula, and I know how happy she is uh, to get that first hug and to be re reunited with him. Kevin, you can you, you can hear the joy in his voice there. What, what was it like for you, that first moment when you got back home and you're able to hug your wife again, see your kids again? What, can, can you put that into words, like what that felt like? I can try. <laughs> it was amazing. <laughs> I mean, I, I got off the plane, of course, there were... There was two border security people who met us, knew who we were, and said, you know, come with us and give me your passport. We'll take care of everything. And they led me to a private room in Vancouver Airport. And my, my wife, my kids, my grandkids were there, and a couple of friends who had, were helping them along the way were all there. It was just a, a huge and tremendous reunion. I mean, it's, it's really hard to just put into words what it felt like. It was just like, you know, this kind of nightmare of 775 days it was ending, and, and then the healing could begin. Yeah, it's like going from the lowest low to the highest high, I imagine. Exactly. In a, in a way, exactly. yeah. 
Oh yeah, Just, I haven't asked you. We're ordering. We have tonight. we haven't gotten there yet. So we'll get there. But thank you. Thank you so much. It, yes. Whatever he wants. Whatever Absolutely. he wants. Absolutely. I'll thank make you. it happen. Uh, I'm running on about two, I'm running on about two hours of sleep in the last 24 plus hours, so I don't have any exciting plans just yet. <laughs> okay, Michael Kovrig there. He was asked what he wanted as his first dinner meal back home in Canada, and as you heard him say there, it'll basically whatever he wants for dinner he'll get. But uh, uh, he is still adjusting to life back in Canada, along with Michael Spavor. And speaking to Kevin Garrett, he's the BC man who was arrested and jailed in China under very similar circumstances, 775 days in detention. Kevin, do you remember what your first uh, meal was when you got home? Um. We, we were all our kids, our grandkids were there, so my wife had prepared kind of a picnic. We went to a park nearby uh, where we were staying for a couple of nights, and it was just uh, nice to hang out in the park and play with the grandkids and just really relax. It was, it was that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that you chose to go to a park because one of the things I heard from the two Michaels on the weekend, too, is one of the things they wanted to do was spend some time outside, you know, look at the natural beauty of our country and just enjoy the fresh air after being locked up for so long. I mean, did you experience uh, similar? Oh, yes. Yeah, I, I loved it because, you know, for my cell, all I could see, if they let us outside into what I call the cage, I could look up to the right, and on the hill I could see a single tree. That's about all I could see. So, And that was only sometimes. So, you know, seeing nature, being in the beauty of the parks and the natural beauty we have here, uh, it was incredible. How were you able to uh, preserve your health while you were locked up for all that time? Like, I thought it was interesting that Michael Kovrig actually looked in, in pretty good shape. And I remember speaking to his wife, Vina, who said that he had been working out in his cell. Like, he would walk around his cell like a thousand steps at a time yeah. around his cell. Mm -hmm. looked like he was, looked mm -hmm. like he was doing some push-ups too because he looked uh, he looked in pretty good shape. Like were you able to get some like exercise over there when you're in jail? Not really. Uh, yeah. if we did something in the cell like I tried to do push-ups or things like that, they the loudspeaker would come on and say, you know, stop doing that. Really? They let us out into the yeah, they, oh. they wouldn't let us. Oh and, man. Uh, so it was really kind of hard. When we went outside, we could kind of walk in a circle in this, it's about the same size as the cell itself, but just outside with, you know, a cage. Uh, so you could walk around. You really couldn't do much more. That's incredible. Speaking to Kevin Garrett about his time in jail in China, um, what was it like to transition back to, a, a, like, a normal life in Canada? Was Did that take a while or was it just, would you just hit the ground running and just get back to normal when you got home? Or did it take, did you have any kind of, I don't know, like post-traumatic uh, symptoms after what happened to you? Well, you know, I, I've told people that, you know, it, I felt normal, but I wasn't really normal. And I didn't really realize I wasn't feeling normal until about 18 months later after, you know, the tension and the stress has left, left me and I felt more normal i thought i could go back and do things but i just didn't really feel like it you know? i thought because yeah. you're bombarded with all these choices now we're in prison there's no choice you know you get up or you you can't say i'm not getting up or you can't, or things like that so all of a sudden even i can understand with michael cover what's your first meal going to be and it's kind of like well whatever comes basically because you, <laughs> you have no choice in prison right yeah. so he'll be happy with anything probably. And then he'll start to think, Oh, I think I want a taco or maybe a burger now, maybe. And 
for me, it was like, <laughs> yeah, I haven't had that in two years. I want one of those. And then, you know, two hours later, I think I want another one. <laughs> so, <laughs> was, was it tough though? Like, did you, did you experience any difficulties transitioning back or was just, just like overjoyed to be home? Well, I was overjoyed, but it was, uh, you know, as I said, it's, all the tension and stress is leaving you, but it doesn't leave immediately. Yeah. Right? It's still there. You're still wary of when you see uh, Chinese people following you, which happened to us. You're still wary of phone calls and things like that because you don't know what's going on and because then that's how they track you and tap into things. So like you were, you were worried. You mean, you mean like you were worried you were still being watched or followed? Well, we absolutely were in Canada for the first wow. year or two. It was obvious. And a lot of times it wasn't obvious, but it was there. Wow. What do you think the the transition will be like for the two Michaels, like Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig back in Canada? What kind of transition period or process do you think they'll go through? Well, I hope they get some, maybe some counseling or maybe just hang out with good friends and just be able to talk and do normal things again and take time. I mean, I think that's really important. I hope they don't try and jump into, you know, writing a book is helpful. And we, we told our story a lot and that was helpful. That's healing to tell. And I hope they will do the same, but I hope they will take time to process first and then begin to, to talk more. Right. And that has been helpful for you. Yes, very helpful. Yeah. yeah. Like writing like writing the book. Would you say that that was like a therapeutic process for you? It was therapeutic, but it was really yeah. painful because I, I did a lot of things I didn't want to remember. You know, you start writing, oh, I just like you take you back to those feelings of like just hopelessness and things like that and you don't want to feel that but you you have to go through it to be able to write it yeah well i'm sure glad that you're home i'm glad the two michaels are home and i'm always grateful for your time on the show here kevin thank you for coming on with your thoughts and insight on it today well thank you mike yeah god bless you Thank you. Thank you. Same to you, Kevin Garrett. Let's talk about crime on the streets of Vancouver. The Vancouver Police Department have stepped up their patrols on Davie Street, also in the Granville uh, Business District as well, after a rash of property crime, break-ins, vandalism, assaults, general mayhem on the streets of some of these neighborhoods just checking out social media over the weekend it's almost like you got daily reports there of windows being smashed in uh, some of these neighborhoods this is a story that we followed closely here for you on the show have a listen to this this is john boychuk here now he's the owner of davy village tanning his place has been broken into multiple times and here he is talking about what a burden that is when you're trying to run a small business have a listen it's one thing to have your window smashed once twice Three times. I've had my windows broken four times in the last nine months, and one was out of a mental health issue, but the other were for theft. And in that theft, sure, it was a couple of grand the first time, you know, five grand the second time. Uh, where do we make up these losses? And then for the replacement of the glass, the insurance companies are like, okay, you hit once, great. Hit twice, hmm. three times, not insurable. Okay, John Boychuk there, owner of Davy Village Tanning. Davy Street uh, businesses along there have been targeted frequently here for these type of break-ins and, and damage. Let's check in with John Clarides now, owner of Marquee Wine Cellars, also on Davy Street. Hi, John. Good morning, Mike. Hey, thanks a lot for coming on. Can you remind the listeners about your business and some of the recent break-ins that you've had at your place? Sure, our front window, we uh, kept a, an electric e-bike with a branded box on the back. We were using for deliveries to downtown and our clients uh, in the West End. We obviously kept it on the inside of the store. 
but uh, someone about three weeks ago decided they wanted the bike, and they took a blowtorch to the window, shattered it, and uh, took the bike. Yeah, and that's yeah. What the second time? What is the sta- um, what is the status? What is the status of that? Is the bike still? Do you get? Has the bike been found? It's gone. Okay. No, no uh, it's gone. Yeah. It's gone. As I know, there were some pictures of it. it's a very distinctive looking bike, and I know it was it was uh, there were pictures put up on social media. So maybe there was like a faint hope someone would see it, but nothing. You'd like to think so, but you know, I don't. I, I'm not certain that will happen. Yeah, how much was that bike worth? Uh, with the box and the bike, the total is about six thousand dollars. Yeah, six thousand bucks. Okay, just another day at the office for you there, uh, losing a six thousand dollars. Another another day doing business in Vancouver and downtown. Yeah, there you go. Well, let's talk about some of the other. I know you follow some of the other businesses in the, in Vancouver that have been suffering similar break-ins and damage, and you catalog it pretty pretty well on social media. Which I encourage people to check out your Twitter, follow you on there. Um, where are some of the other places that have been recently broken into? I just saw the uh, drop-in medical clinic. Uh, Davy and Thurlow had a window smashed. The Burrard Pharmasave. Uh, uh, Davy and Burrard had their front window smashed uh, while I was driving. Uh, the 7-Eleven at Davy and Hornby had a window smashed on the Hornby side. And when I was driving along Smythe Street, uh, Staples, which has been hit multiple times, I saw a window smashed. I have limited mobility because I just got I had some Achilles tendon surgery, so I'm not walking very well, so I'm driving around. And this is just it, it, in my own little world of what i see just one that, person what was that fire that was set at the back of a, a place oh that, that's that's our neighbor so that's uh on on davy street there's a subway a dollar store and fahrenheit 212 which is a steam bath the back of the lot is actually has a little bit of a covered uh parking lot and ever since covid started that has been the place for people to do all sorts of things. And I think it was last Wednesday, someone set a seemingly significant fire uh, in the back of the parking lot, cardboard, wood. I'm not sure what it was. Uh, a fire truck came and some, I tweeted it. And then someone else tweeted a picture from uh, a, one of the higher up buildings. And you could see the smoke coming out onto Davy Street and Burrard Street. Yeah, there's another, another, just another day in the neighborhood. Speaking to John Claridis, owner of Marquee Wine Cellar on Davy Street. John, let me play a clip here for you from Sergeant Steve Addison from the Vancouver Police Department. He was on the show recently talking about this uptick in crime in some neighborhoods. Here's what he had to say. The kinds of stories that we are uh, hearing over and over again from businesses and residents all over this, all over the city. Uh, the downtown core, the West End, has been hit particularly hard. For all of these incidents that get reported to the police, we also know that there's also a significant number that haven't been reported to the police. We are hearing every day from uh, business owners who have been dealing with violent shoplifters or uh, vandalism, broken windows, graffiti. Okay, yeah, it's Sergeant Steve Addison there from the Vancouver Police Department. John, we, you and I have been uh, in correspondence here a few times over the last week or so about this hassle, the cost, the expense, the aggravation that you go through and your, your business is targeted like this multiple times. And tell me about the, the roll-down steel shutter option that you were thinking about installing. So I contacted my architect, and I'm reading, and he contacted the city. It took him about a week to get back to him. 
And it says, I'm, I'm reading it out to it. It says, hi, Alan, this location you would need to get planning approval. If you have security concerns, we would prefer you install an interior metal grill that we can roll away in, in the daytime when the business is open. Roll-down shutters are not usually approved other than in industrial zones. Right. Um, if you need further assistance, blah, 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 blah. Uh, uh, and that's it. Yeah, yeah. I it. got I got similar. I checked with the city on, on this too, and, and they said that these steel, and people are familiar with these look like, those steel, those big roll-down steel shutters that you sure. roll down in the front of a on the front of a store at night and you know they do they're not they're not attractive looking things i mean they're, they're it is kind of ugly looking thing and i understand that but man when your business is just getting targeted like this over and over like one of the things the city said to me was that if you allowed these to be installed in some of these downtown neighborhoods first of all they'd be tagged with graffiti right away which would look really nasty and uh, they also worried about ambient lighting from the store which would pass through the window at night and add some safety along the sidewalk so they're worried about that like if there's some light in the store spilling out onto the street at night that's good for safety in the neighborhood and yeah, if you had a good yeah your thoughts go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, yeah, that's good for illuminating illuminating the thieves or workspace area too <laughs> yeah <laughs> Anyway, so I interrupted you. Well, no, I think it's a good point because I, I've also heard from store owners who have just started moving stuff out of the windows at night or sort of hiding stuff in the store that you can see through the window, right, to maybe hopefully prevent a break-in. Is that going on? Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that, that definitely happens in jewelry stores and, and things with, with high value. But, you know, there's no rhyme or reason. They'll take... You know, these thieves will take a $5 or $0.05 cent thing if they can pawn it in the downtown and downtown east side. So it really, it really doesn't matter on the value of, uh, of the product in there. Obviously, high-value products um, have uh, more uh, ability to get broken, you know, broken into and taken. But, yeah. you know, it doesn't, really, it doesn't really matter. The point, the point being is that, you know, there's a solution out there. And, of course, it's another stone wall from the city. I get, I get what they're saying. But they haven't provided us with any any type of solution or any type of safety uh, endeavors to make the citizens and the business people feel uh, just a little bit more comfortable. I've heard nothing from the mayor, nothing from certain people from city council, zero. Yeah, what about um, so many windows getting smashed? I read an interesting thread on social media on the weekend pointing out that the city right now has a graffiti program. So like if a business gets tagged with graffiti, the city can step in and help pay to clean that up, I guess, which is a good program. And someone else was pointing out, well, what about all these broken windows? Like some stores having trouble getting insurance if they've had their windows broken over and over and over again, maybe the city should pay for the broken windows. Well, what? I mean, is the root cause, the root cause, you know, I would I think that's that's a great idea, but we all know that's definitely not going to happen. I know the graffiti program, they hire Goodbye Graffiti, the BIAs um, help with that. I know in my building, as soon as graffiti hits, uh, I paint it over because it, it's like a cancer. Uh, you know, the, the solution, you know, the, the solution is, you know, deep and, and, and varied. But in the meantime, before that happens, 
something has to be done. And I know there's increased police presence, and um, and following up on these people are trying to catch these people that uh, that break the windows. And wherever those goods are sold, they need to be confiscated because you know down on the street, uh, a lot of those goods are, st- are stolen goods that they're selling to finance their um, their um, uh, drug habit. Sure. John, difficult days for you. Thank you for coming on to talk about it once again today. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Mike. Thanks for having me. Michelle, one of the most troubling aspects of the current wave of the Delta variant in British Columbia is the number of pregnant women admitted to ICU in British Columbia suffering from COVID symptoms, largely unvaccinated. Uh, a lot of preg- Some pregnant women may be afraid to take uh, the vaccine. Uh, that's certainly reflected in the number of uh, pregnant women in ICU right now. It's a troubling number. And this was something that Dr. Bonnie Henry addressed recently. And she encouraged people, if you're pregnant, don't do your research online about the impact of the vaccine. Have a listen here. What we need to do is, is have venues, have places where people can actually get credible information that uh, that helps allay some of those fears. And that's one of the reasons why I really wanted to talk about pregnancy today, why I wanted to talk about uh, some of the other concerns that we're hearing from people because of the intentional scaring um, that goes on in some of these, uh, uh, particularly social media sites that are just plain wrong. Okay, is Dr. Bonnie Henry there talking about the number of pregnant women who are ending up in hospital with COVID because they're unvaccinated. Let's discuss now with my guest, Dr. Deborah Money. Dr. Money is a professor at UBC's Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, and I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Dr. Money, thank you for coming on today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I thought you wrote a great piece about this that I encourage people to check out. I will certainly tweet the link out for it, and it's called Busting the Myths About COVID-19 Vaccines and Fertility. So let's talk a little bit about that, sort of separating fact from fiction when it comes to the vaccine and for uh, for people who are pregnant. So what about, so let's talk about that. So for people who are pregnant right now or they're trying to become pregnant, is the vaccine safe? Yes, absolutely. The vaccine is safe and it's highly effective in preventing COVID-19 serious illness. Right. And you point out that one of the myths that you want to highlight is the belief in in some quarters that the vaccines that are available have not been tested specifically for people who are pregnant. And that's not right. Correct? Yeah. Yes. um, That... um comes, I think, originally from the fact that the early uh, what we call licensure studies, which the companies undergo uh, with a, usually a very limited population, mostly men, um, excluding pregnant women, to get their data so that they can get the product licensed and out into the market. And, and it's true there were very few pregnant women in those early studies. However, uh, as we do for most new products and new vaccines, we look to what we call post-licensure data. When the product gets into the, the populations in a widespread way, we look right. at um, safety signals and uh, effectiveness signals. And in this case, we've got hundreds of thousands of pregnant persons who have had the vaccine and we've got good registries in the United States in Canada and other parts of the world who are following outcomes. And the conclusion from those, including a very good study in Ontario, uh, is showing that there is no uh, concerns of uh, safety. The side effects are similar to non-pregnant individuals, uh, and there doesn't appear to be any adverse um, reproductive health or pregnancy outcomes. 
Okay, that's really good to know. An- another myth that you highlight here is, does the COVID-19 vaccine cause miscarriages? And you address that as well. What can you say about that? So unfortunately, uh, humans um, actually do miscarry quite often. And, and as, a, as a species, uh, we can have up to 20% miscarriage rates. So it's very possible to, unfortunately, coincidentally have a miscarriage following a vaccine. But there's absolutely right. no data to suggest it increases the risk of miscarriage. Right. So if you have, I, I, I take your point there, like, you know, there, there is a degree of miscarriage, there is a miscarriage rate separate from the vaccine, but you could have a situation where a, a woman might take the, take the COVID-19 vaccine and they might miscarry later, but it's got nothing to do with the vaccine, right? But does it right. create... Does it create some sort of a, a reporting system online and saying, oh, you know, it was people trying to put it together, a cause, a cause and effect? Right. Um, but what we're seeing is that there's not an increase in the background rate of miscarriage right. associated with vaccine. Right, right. Okay. Another myth you highlight, COVID-19 vaccines can damage the placenta. Yeah, that's an interesting one that's been circulating on social media um, a bit surprisingly. Um, uh, somewhere there was a report suggesting that the spike protein was similar to something called syncytium-1, which is a placental protein. In fact, the similarity is, is not really significant. Um, some proteins generally look a bit like others, but in this case, it, there isn't what we call cross-reaction between these two proteins and the immune system. And so... Um, and there isn't evidence that there's any significant amount of spike protein circulating in the context of vaccination. So, so it's really just, um, I guess I would call it pseudoscience. Not yeah, true. yeah, pseudoscience, right. And a lot of it is circulating out there. Another myth you highlight that the mRNA vaccine technology hasn't been tested enough to know whether there's any links to it and infertility. What can you say about that one? So um, although the mRNA is, is new in the sense of COVID vaccine is new and it's one of our new technologies used, the mRNA platform has been around for decades and has been yeah. used in a variety of vaccines, including the Ebola vaccine, developmental CMV vaccines and others. And in fact, also in cancer vaccines, some quite promising ones there. So, so first off, the platform isn't new. Um, but, uh, and also there doesn't appear to be any relationship between mRNA and infertility. And I think, again, that comes from the misunderstanding that because it's, it's an RNA that it could cause changes in the genetic makeup of uh, the body or cells. And it, it cannot do that. The, the message, mRNA is a message. It's not like our DNA. So it can't go into our DNA. Right. So if you have a woman who is pregnant, okay, bottom line on this, I guess, is if you have a woman who is pregnant or she's trying to become pregnant, they should not hesitate to take the COVID-19 vaccine. Would that be your advice? Or, or would there be any, you know, rare circumstances where they might defer the vaccine? I think only if they themselves have a um, contraindication to vaccine, there's a very small list of reasons why not to take the vaccine allergy to the product for having previously yeah. had it or um, uh, certain um, uh, specific medical conditions, but that's a very small list. But otherwise, um, ordinary people with, without complicated medical problems um, absolutely can take the vaccine. And we would be recommending 
women to take both doses before they become pregnant so they're immune before they get pregnant. And if they're already pregnant, we would really encourage them to get protected. And it's advantageous to prevent serious disease for them and hopefully reduce the risk of preterm birth, which is associated with getting COVID in pregnancy. Wow. I mean, yeah. I mean, there are very, very strong arguments for getting the vaccine because you are pregnant, right? (laughs) Because COVID is a risk factor if you're pregnant. Well, absolutely. And that's why most of the provinces put pregnant women in the um, category of of specifically recommending uh, because of the increased risk of hospitalization, ICU admission and premature birth. Yeah, right. So that's an argument for getting the vaccine, not avoiding it, which is... uh, Let me play another clip here for you from uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry here, Dr. Money. Here she is talking about this precise point here about how pregnancy is a risk. It's a risk factor if you get COVID-19. Have a listen here. There is an increased risk of severe illness requiring hospitalization or ICU care if you get COVID-19 when you're pregnant. Canadian data, including about 1,500 pregnant people here in British Columbia and international data show that significantly worse levels of severe disease, especially now with the Delta variant that we're seeing and higher rates of adverse infant outcomes, things like stillbirths and preterm births or babies being born early. Okay, as Dr. Bonnie Henry there talking about the risks for people who are pregnant from COVID-19. So that's an argument there to make sure you do get the vaccine to protect yourself, right, uh, Dr. Money? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. No, this is information that um, we're very pleased that we've been able to look at Canadian data to validate um, that the international data is relevant for Canadian women. And our CanCOVID-PREG pan-Canadian surveillance program has been looking at outcomes across the country. And we have indeed seen higher rates of hospitalization, um, three to fourfold higher rates and higher rates of um, admission to ICU, and a twofold at least higher rate of preterm birth, which has which we know has adverse outcomes for infants being because of being born premature. Yeah, you really need to protect yourself from the virus for sure. When you take a look at those ICU numbers and you got, you know, 40 pregnant people admitted to ICU in BC, uh, most in this in this fourth wave from this Delta Delta variant, what kind of warning sign does that does that present for you if if you've got pregnant women ending up in ICU? That is a tragic situation. What are your thoughts? Well, it, 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 yeah, it's terrible and and you know, it's the absolute worst case scenario where you essentially have two patients in the ICU there. You've got the pregnant woman who everybody's trying to get through this terrible episode, um, often related to difficulty breathing, not getting enough oxygen. And then, of course, that's not good for the developing fetus, having a very, very sick mother who is struggling to keep her oxygen levels up. So it's a dreadful combination. We've seen it before with uh, influenza, and we're seeing it now even worse with this um, Delta variant. Yeah, okay. Bottom line on this one then, Dr. Money, if if you're pregnant or you're trying to get pregnant, don't be afraid of the vaccine, right? Get the vaccine. Don't believe this pseudoscience that people are pushing online. Absolutely. We would really encourage women to take the opportunity to protect themselves and their developing baby. Okay. Very important information. Thank you for coming on today to talk about it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care 
a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. All right, welcome back to the show. One week ago today, Canada voted and elected basically the same government we already had, the Justin Trudeau Liberal Minority Government uh, re-elected. According to a brand new poll, a lot of Canadians not happy with the results. Checking with Mario Canseco now, president of the Research Co. polling company. Mario, thanks for coming on again. My pleasure, Mike. Okay, what did you find out when you asked Canadians about their thoughts on the outcome of the election? Well, it's the same question that we asked two years ago. And back then, we had 49% of Canadians who voted in the election who said that it was a good result and they were happy with a liberal minority. When we asked the same question this year, it drops all the way to 42%. So we get the same parliament, but we have fewer people who are satisfied with the outcome of how we voted. Why do you think that is? Well, I think there's a couple of factors. One of them is that uh, there were people who were more likely to be afraid of an Andrew Scheer government. He wasn't really connecting very well on many of the issues. He was seen as, as very conservative on the social side of things. And I just don't think we saw the same situation with Erin O'Toole. In the final poll that we conducted, his approval rating was very close to what we saw for Justin Trudeau. So it's definitely a situation where there's people out here who maybe ex- expected uh, to have a conservative minority government and are not as likely to be happy with the situation that we find ourselves in right now. Okay, a lot of people say that the election campaigns matter to the outcome, the campaigns matter. Uh, I thought this was such a weird and strange election. I I was wondering how how many people were actually paying attention to this election campaign. Do you think a lot of people made up their minds before the campaign even started? We definitely saw that. I think part of the situation that we wanted to get into is, did this work at all? And we have 48% of Canadian voters who say that they made up their minds about which party to support before the campaign began. The late shift, which is important because we heard a lot about whether the bloc was going to be coming back, whether the People's Party was connecting very well on the final stages, whether people were afraid of the Conservative Party because of what happened in Alberta with Jason Kenney. The numbers are similar across all the parties, somewhere from 10 to 17 percent. So you have half of the electorate who, even before we knew that this election was going to happen, already knew who they were voting for. Okay, that's very interesting finding. Speaking to Mario Canseco, he's pollster with the Research Co. polling company. When you take a look at the tone of these campaigns, you asked uh, respondents in your last survey what they thought about that, whether the various parties had run a positive campaign. What did you find out? Well, the one that gets kudos from more than half of Canadians is the NDP. 54% of Canadian voters we talked to say that they run a very positive or moderately positive campaign. The numbers are a little bit lower for the Liberals and the Conservatives, 44 and 43%, and significantly lower for the Greens at only 31%, and the People's Party at 24%. Now, the curious thing about this is when we focus in on People's Party voters, 97% of them say that they run a positive campaign. So what's crucial here is not even those who are really staunch liberal supporters or conservative supporters have this level of delusion when it comes to their to, to their own campaigns. Well, you know, there's an old saying in politics that a lot of people don't like negative campaigning or attack ads in politics, but the reason that the politicians and the political parties use them is because they work. And when you take a look at the result of your poll here, Mario, 54%, so more than half of Canadians actually thought the NDP ran a very positive or a positive campaign here. 
didn't really seem to translate into the support or seats in the House of Commons for the NDP, though. Well, we find ourselves in a situation similar to the one we had with Jack Layton after his first couple of elections. Um, people like the, the leader of the NDP, they think that he's a great person, he has a higher approval rating than anybody else, but they're not willing to give the votes to the local candidates in the riding. So it's the second election where the numbers are fairly similar. Yes, they okay. did gain one and a half points when it came to voting, but they're not getting more seats, and that's a problem. Mario, thanks for coming on. Interesting survey as always. My pleasure, Mike. Anytime. My next sketch is a Shachi Curl. Shachi, of course, is well known to CKNW listeners, one of Canada's top pollsters. She is the president of the Angus Reid Institute. She was the moderator of the televised English language leaders debate in the recent federal election. And listeners may be aware she asked Bloc Québécois leader Yves-Francois Blanchet a tough question about Canada's language and religious symbols laws that touched off a firestorm of controversy. And she wrote a weekend op-ed about the experience in the Globe and Mail, which I encourage you to check out. Give me a follow on Twitter. Uh, you will find the link there. I just posted it for you. Also looking forward to getting Shachi's take on Canada's relations with China and the return of the two Michaels. And I'm very pleased she could join us today. Shachi, thank you very much for coming on. Hi, Mike. Okay, thanks a lot for coming on. I encourage listeners to check out your op-ed in the Globe and Mail on the controversy at the leaders' debate. The headline is, I was asked to apologize for my question in the leaders' debate. I stand by it unequivocally. Let's talk about that question, Shachi, and what set off the controversy. I guess, I guess people were saying it was like Quebec bashing, right? Is that what the, the, the controversy boiled down to? I mean, you'd have to have uh, the leader of the BQ to come on and, and speak to why he said that. It's not for me to say. Um, I asked a question that was drawn from the input of more than 20,000 Canadians who were, uh, who were canvassed by the networks around what they wanted to hear. That was among the things, that issue, that question, uh, the question of why the BQ leader uh, supported both uh, Bills 96, which are about language rights, in right. Quebec and 21, which are about the right to wear your religious uh, garb uh, and still do a job in the public service. This is, this is also a question that people wanted to hear about. Uh, the questions were reviewed and vetted by the entire debate editorial team, which included me, but was more than just me. And, you know, I asked the question, I stand by it, Mike, because... Mm. Who gets to decide what you can't ask in a country that is a uh, democracy like Canada in the middle of an election campaign? No, Who I gets hear you. to decide what is, what is a, a legitimate question? Are we really going to hand the arbitration of what we can and can't talk about to, I don't know, the politicians? Like, who, who decides? Who gets to decide? Well, I think it boils down to a lot of Quebec politics, I think, for sure. But let's listen briefly to the question here that you asked Shachi, and then I, well, I'll talk a little bit more about it. So here is the question that Shachi asked during the debate that set off the controversy here. Have a listen. 
You deny that Quebec has problems with racism, yet you defend legislation such as Bills 96 and 21, which marginalize religious minorities, Anglophones and allophones. Quebec is recognized as a distinct society, but for those outside the province, please help them understand why your party also supports these discriminatory laws. Okay, so and then there was an exchange between you and the Bloc Québécois leader and uh, the demands for apologies and retractions. You mentioned, Shachi, that the question was reviewed by the consortium. Like, who wrote the question? Did you write it, or did someone else write it? The questions were reviewed and written uh, in a very collaborative and iterative way across the debate's editorial groups. Yeah. And did you expect, I mean, the firestorm of reaction here? I mean, this is a tough question, and you asked all the party leaders some a tough, uncomfortable question off the top. But did you expect this reaction that we saw? The questions were not meant to be sort of general sit back, please tell us why you're awesome, please tell us. You know, they were not meant to give airtime for for unfiltered infomercials from the politicians, Mike. I mean, you've had the politicians uh, on the shows. You know that when they have an opportunity, they will often, you know, to what they want to speak about rather than what people at home want to listen to. And very much in my mind, front and center was not what does the Ottawa bubble want to talk about or hear about, what what do the politicians want to focus on because it's good marketing for them. It was what are the things that really speak to what people at home are, are... engaged by or galvanized by will be informed by yeah i mean i thought the question was fair and i congratulate you for standing up and defending the question and not backing down on it you did write in your uh, your op-ed in the globe and mail that could the question have been phrased differently and and you thought that yes it could have been phrased differently how do you think it could have been phrased better it's a matter of better or worse there there was some reaction to the framing of the question there was some thought perhaps that that you know again i think people didn't entirely understand that i i was i was not simply what i was asking whatever was coming into my head or putting you know my own words into it there is a quebec superior court judge who ruled in quebec uh on the discriminatory nature of bill 21 hence the word discriminatory so right. there, there are ways that perhaps this could have been attributed better, but, but Mike, you know what it's like to produce a live show every day. You know what it's like to have to keep your questions tight because you don't want to take up all the time asking really long questions in a right. debate format, which, by the way, I didn't design but was working within, that already allowed uh, very tight time frames. But, by the way, time frames that politicians can well handle. I mean, they, you know... They have speaking uh, limits uh, in terms of time in the legislature and the House of Commons, but still, you don't want to make your questions so long that that's what eats up all the gas. Okay, I encourage listeners to check out your op-ed in the Globe and Mail that appeared on the weekend. Give me a follow on Twitter, at Mike Smith News on Twitter, S-M-Y-T-H. I just posted it there for you. Make sure you check it out. My guest is Shachi Curl, president of the Angus Reid Institute. Shachi, let's talk a little about another big story in the news right now, and that's uh, Canada's continuing relations with China, the return of the two Michaels to, to, to Canada, which everyone was uh, grateful and happy to see on the weekend. 
I know you've done a lot of surveys and polling on Canadians' attitudes on this story. What have you found out in some of your polls on this? Well, just in terms of the state of Sino-Canadian relations today, safe to say that from a Canadian perspective, they're, they're at a pretty low point. Mike, only, only just over 10% of Canadians have a, a, a favorable view of Beijing and the Beijing regime. Uh, I think the last time we asked this question, I think only 10% of Canadians viewed that, that China could be counted on to uphold the rule of law and human rights. Um, so there's a lot of where do we go from here. Um, the, the Michaels are home. Ms. Mung has gone home. I think as we sift through the tea leaves, the questions will really be, uh, did, did the Canadian government take what Canadian citizens uh, believe to be the right approach? Uh, could this have ended sooner? Yeah. Uh, would, would moving more quickly to, to push a swap been the right thing or the wrong thing to do? I think these are some of the unanswered questions. And then from a policy standpoint, uh, you've still got a lot of pundits and commentators out there, and certainly on the weekend saying, Yes, you know, China's still a very important partner. Uh, China's a very important part of Canada's economic ecosystem. Uh, all of those things are, are true. We trade a lot with China. But uh, what is the appetite, for example, for um, Chinese investment, not only in, in goods or commerce or trade, but also in uh, the ownership of Canadian companies, in their access to technology, in their access to 5G, uh, we're trying to build out a 5G network. Should China have a role in that? There's only so many countries with the technology to do it. So these these are the outstanding things that Canadians now are going to have to sift through, along with you know uh, some of the record on on uh, what's been happening in Hong Kong, uh, and they'll have to you know they're going to make their own decisions about how much and the ways in which we engage with uh, with Beijing going forward up to and including should we go to the Olympics uh, next yeah, year so, right. so these are these are some of the issues yeah I mean there's a it's an interesting balancing act for sure because they are a major trading partner they're a superpower they're economically and otherwise so it, it's tough to deal with these situations especially when our economy depends on a healthy trading relationship with some of these large trading partners but do you find that in your surveys of Canadians that there's an appetite for Canada to get tougher on China, especially after we've seen the treatment of the two Michaels? Well, stay tuned on that. Certainly, I would say that through the period of the Michaels detention, there has been nothing but nothing but a desire among Canadians for a hard line on China. Um, and, and that, I think, at times has put uh, Canadians in a place where they're already... Um, uh, prepared to go further than Canadian politicians were prepared to go. I think a lot of that was anger. A lot of that was a desire to see something done, so to speak. Yeah. So, um, uh, you know, I think now there's a, there's a bit of time to decompress. Uh, certainly the Michaels need and deserve time to decompress. And I think then everybody sort of takes a couple of steps back, reflects, and, and really decides, okay, now what? And, uh, and the now what has, uh, some of the, uh, some of, some of that is going to have to deal with the economic equation. And some of that is really going to have to deal with who does Canada want to be on the world stage? 
um, against the backdrop of, of engagement right. with China. Shachi, thanks for coming on today. My pleasure. Let's talk about the coyote attacks in Stanley Park now. Stanley Park is now fully open again. No recent attacks to report after an estimated 45 to 50 attacks since last December. We did have that cull of coyotes in the park under the BC Natural Resources Ministry. A total of 11 coyotes have been euthanized in the park this year. Seems to have slowed down. We don't have any recent coyote attacks to report to Meanwhile, though, why was it happening? Why were these coyotes turning aggressive against people? Was it because people were feeding coyotes in the park? The day after the park reopened, two people arrested and a vehicle seized in connection with alleged feeding of coyotes in the park. Let's check in with Jackie Birchall now. Jackie is a daily user of the park. And she's been trying to warn people, don't feed the animals in the park. Jackie, thanks for coming on today. Oh, you're welcome. And thank you for talking about this issue. Yeah, for sure. Do you walk in the park every day? I do. I do. Um, in the morning, you know, early-ish, around 6.30. As soon after light as I can. It's later now, right? Around 6.37. And then in the mid-afternoon, yeah. Have you seen a lot of coyotes in the park? Before... The call, I I frequently met a coyote daily on the trails, yeah, and it was always, um, you know, I'd go around a corner and there'd be a coyote on the trail ahead of me, and they're very shy, and they would just ghost into the trees. I, I never, ever had um, a bad encounter, aggressive encounter, no. I was one that, you know, never did. Okay, I'm glad, I'm glad to hear that, but you haven't seen any recently, huh? No, because, right. no, you know, since the call started, they you know, they really seem to have disappeared. Okay, let's talk about the feeding of the coyotes, and I know this is something you feel strongly about. So tell me about your campaign to sort of get the word out to other people in the park. Like, if you see people feeding animals, what do you do? You go up to them and you talk to them directly, right? Well, yeah, it's not just me. There's a few of us, you know, yeah. because, um, but, and we, we just talk to people, you know, about, um, please, you know, please don't do that. And, uh, of course, People aren't always nice. You know, some people <laughs> don't think that little old ladies should be telling them what to do in the park. And um, and the thing that most frustrates me in the trails, I see people walking into the trails with reusable shopping bags with weight to them. So you know that they have food in there, you know. And also, um, people love to feed um, the raccoons around Lost Lagoon, and they leave piles of pet food. And I say to them, well, you know, the coyotes don't know that that says raccoons only, and that leads to more problems. Right, and you mentioned that some people aren't very nice to you when you point this out to them, right? Like, what do they say yeah. to you? They're, they're not nice to anybody um, that points that out. Yeah, you know, I've, I've been told uh, twice that uh, I'm a taxpayer and I can do what I want in the park. Um, somebody else said, I've been doing this for years, so what? Um, I, I was walking around the lagoon one day, and I saw a man shouting at a woman, and she was a runner, and as she ran towards me, I said, are you okay? And she said, I just asked him not to feed. So when I got level with him, he said to me, I don't understand what's wrong, you know? So I think people people don't understand. Some people think they're being kind, maybe. I know some people do it out of loneliness. The other day, a friend and I, Rita, we picked up a big pile of potato chips on the shore of, of Lost Lagoon while a lady screamed at us because she put them there, you know. So, mm. there's, there's, you know, there's not always 
sometimes it's mental health problems and sometimes yeah. it's loneliness and people just don't understand that it leads to the death of the coyote. Yeah, I had the uh, one of the park board managers tell me that they had some reports that people were feeding the coyotes so they could get photographs of them and share the photographs on Instagram and social media. You ever seen that? Oh. People trying to take pictures of them? No, um, my friend Rita, who, you know, we we do this together sometimes, she, she uses a telephoto lens and she does not bait, but she says yeah. there are definitely people doing that. But I have caught a photographer who baits the raccoons around Lost Lagoon. I caught him feeding 14 one day, including 10 babies, and then he puts them on his Instagram account and calls himself some kind of an expert, you know, and says, you know, I'm so wonderful. And people don't realize that the raccoon shots he gets are awesome because he's feeding them. Yeah. yeah he's, what is... he's, been re- he's been reported, you know, he just has to be caught by the authorities. Right. What is the danger of this, like feeding wildlife like that? What is the potential negative outcome there? Well, they become well. They become habituated to human beings, right? Yeah, and and, yeah. and 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 if you if you walk, you know, Lost Lagoon is really a place for feeding. And if you walk around there, often the ducks walk up to you. And if you walk um, around Lost Lagoon around four thirty in the afternoon, now little raccoon families come right up to you in the in the area that this man feeds them for his photographs. You know, they just associate human beings with feeding. Okay, so we. We do see, we just got a minute left here, Jackie. Do you think, like, we are seeing some enforcement now. We saw two people get arrested the other day in a vehicle seize. There's talk about bringing in a a new fine regimen, $500 fine for feeding wildlife in the park. Do you think they need more enforcement on this? Yeah, well, the the Stanley Park Ecology Society has put up no feeding signs in several languages, and I think that's been really effective. The, The park rangers need the right to ticket people. They don't have that. They're not allowed to do that now, but hopefully the park board tonight will give them the right to ticket feeders and that will make a difference. And the only reason those people were arrested the other day was because the conservation officer happened to be there. They're not generally in the park, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. You've got a jurisdictional overlap there. You've got these provincial conservation officers. They can, they can find people, but the park rangers cannot. Is that correct? Yeah, I know. And yeah, the park crazy. rangers are there every day. So the park rangers should have that right yeah it doesn't it doesn't make any sense to me jackie thank you for coming on today i appreciate it thank you so much okay bye